Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talk's TV and movie show. This week on the show, the long-awaited final instalment of Indiana Jones arrives with Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. And I chat to its Oscar-nominated director, James Mangold, about the pressure of taking over from Steven Spielberg. We review the week's new film releases in the company of Chris Wasser. Plus, I chat to broadcaster Derek Mooney about his favourite film. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Farty, or you can email me screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud, and it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm here on Newstalk. Good weekend to you all, hope you're doing well, and life is treating you well. Uh, I was at Peter Gabriel this week, very enjoyable gig great stage show and setting and lights and every song was kind of a looked like an art installation it's very good and he's great songs as well serious kind of guy he wasn't saying let's rock at any stage but great songs great stage show the only drawback and it had nothing to do with peter gabriel was i went with my best mate who i hadn't seen in a good few months and he arrived just before the gig started and we sat down And I don't really one of those people talking during a concert because that's very annoying because it was all seated and it was quiet at times. And, uh, but I hadn't seen this guy in, you know, it could have even been six months and I had loads to catch up on him with. So I was sitting there slightly agitated at times that I kind of couldn't catch up with him while I also wanted to enjoy Peter Gabriel. So that was the bind I was in at Peter Gabriel, a hill of beans, really in the grand scheme of things. Uh, but a, a, a great concert, nonetheless. I uh, A couple of emails during the week. I got one from Kathy Miller in San Diego in California who says she enjoys the show, which is always nice to hear. But she was recommending a TV show on Apple that she thought I'd really like called Platonic with Seth Rogen and Rose Byrne, which I will definitely check out because someone else had mentioned that to me. So thank you for that, Kathy. Radio people love getting emails from people on the far side of the globe. You know, you'll hear it on other radio stations. Not that I ever listen to any other radio station, but getting an email or a voice note or whatever, or a text from, you know, someone that far away, the other side of the world or across an ocean is great. It's it's lovely. Not that it's not great to get, you know, communications from Ballymun or Ballyshannon, but you will notice radio people get a certain... Ah, when someone across the ocean uh, gets in touch with you. I don't know why that is. Maybe, you know, it's your inner Mussolini, you taking over the world or something. But uh, thank you, Kathy, for getting in touch across the pond. Now, let's get to TV and movies. And this week in TV, I was watching this. You don't move on because you're ready to. You move on because you've outgrown who you used to be. I've repurposed my kitchen. Did you know stoves aren't just for storage? Now that is the unmistakable sound of Carrie Bradshaw, Sarah Jessica Parker in the second season of And Just Like That, which started last week, but I'm only getting to talk to you about it this week. And I should say at the outset that, and if you're a regular listener, you'll know this, I absolutely adored and still do Sex in the City about the four ladies negotiating love and life in the big city. It was era-defining. 
TV changing, and that's absolutely true. It, it helped usher in a whole different golden age of TV and, and, and what they were doing at the time on HBO. The first Christmas present I ever got my wife, she was then my girlfriend, new girlfriend, was the box set of Sex in the City. It came, this was back in the DVD days, it came in a shoe box and uh, she loved it. But I think on some unconscious level, I got it for myself because we watched it all the time. So I, I absolutely adore that show. And last year or the year before when, and just like that, the sequel, the follow-up to Sex in the City came out. I enjoyed it to an extent, but I just felt that they were flogging a bit of a dead horse, that Sex in the City, the six seasons, were perfect the way they were, and particularly had a very satisfying ending. And season two of And Just Like That, I really haven't enjoyed so far. And it's kind of annoying me, to be honest, because there is such a waft of, this is no longer a show that really has anything to do with Sex in the City, even though many of the same characters, three in particular, Carrie, Miranda and Charlotte, are, are all still there. The story has moved on. Mr. Big, as we know, is no longer in it. And it's trying to cash in on Sex in the City, but it's also trying to be its own thing now. And Carrie is now is now dating the guy who's producing her podcast. There are some one or two new characters in it. Miranda has moved to the West Coast and she's with this stand-up comedian, Shay. But it all just feels pointless. They're they're too rich now. They're all living these incredibly wealthy lives. There isn't that much of a struggle anymore. Of course, they're still struggling with things in their life, but it just feels done. And it was annoying me. Uh, and the first couple of moments in the first episode are, are Carrie talking about how to poach eggs. So I really have been annoyed. And I'm not that vitriolic type who complains about things that much, I hope you know. But I found and just like that so far really annoying. And I'm struggling to keep going with it, to be honest. But I'm kind of honor bound by work to watch it all. There's also been a bit of a slump from what I've been reading. I was reading Forbes. You know, I never miss Forbes magazine. But they were talking about the slump of the second episode. So it may not be just me. I, I just think and just like that is somewhat irrelevant now. So do let me know if you might have been watching it and what you're making of it. John underscore Fardy is my Twitter handle. Or you can email me screentime at newstalk.com. Now let's get to the big movie event of the summer. You think he'd be proud of this? Your father, his only daughter, selling her soul for bail money. That's my daughter, like that. And it's not all bail money. Some of it's gambling debt. Hey, Teddy. Elena, no. Elena. How did you end up like this? I mean, resourceful, daring, beautiful, self-sufficient. <laughs> yes. Now that was a clip of Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. It's back. Harrison Ford is reprising for the last time. He is definitive about that, the role of Indiana Jones. This is the fifth installment. He is playing Indiana Jones in later life. Thankfully, they're not trying to make him appear particularly much younger than he is in real life. He's basically called out of retirement for one last gig. His goddaughter, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who you heard there, is a similarly interested person in artifacts of the past. And they go on a swashbuckling mission to retrieve something called the Dial of Destiny, which is basically something that Archimedes invented 
thousands of years ago uh, and they're missing one half of this dial and they want to find it because it might alter the course of history. The action takes us from trains to car chases in Tangiers to caves. Uh, Mads Mikkelsen plays an evil Nazi. Much of the action takes place in 1969 uh, around the moon landings when they go on this quest for this dial of destiny. It's very good, which is the good news. We're going to give you a proper review of it shortly in the show in the company of Chris Wasser. But before we do that, I want to talk to its director, who is James Mangold, who gave us Walk the Line, a great Sylvester Stallone movie, Copland. He gave us what many people consider the greatest superhero movie, Logan, of all time. He gave us 310 to Yumba, a brilliant brilliant director. He was also responsible for Billy Joel being in a movie of sorts. We'll get to that. So I had a chat with James Mangold about Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Hi, James. How are you? Very well. How are you doing, John? Very well. I was delighted and I suppose somewhat relieved when I saw the movie because I was just thinking it's an adored, certainly for my child, movie franchise. You know, what I loved about it was the world-weary nature of Harrison's character. He wasn't trying to be 30 or whatever again. Was that key in your thinking? We got to make this guy the 70, 80-year-old he is. Well, we just have to be honest. You know, these films are irreverent and they're really entertaining and funny and filled with action. And certainly this one is. But I think we also, I felt that we needed to turn Harrison's age from a, a, a bug into a feature. It, it, yeah. um, it makes the movie original and different to find a hero in kind of the sunset years of his life who has maybe even kind of lost his mojo. And then as the movie progresses and Phoebe's character comes in and kind of lights a fuse under him, we watch him kind of find that mojo again. And even, you know, even John Williams' theme plays a role in that in the sense that when we first find find Harrison in, in 1969, you're not going to hear bum, 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 bum anywhere around him at that point yeah. until he kind of starts to find his sense of purpose and determination again. Yeah. Yeah. And he does, he does find that, uh, but that might be very important to spoiler. So we won't get into that. You mentioned yeah. Phoebe. She was, and I love Fleabag and all, but she was a revelation because she's so sassy old worldly yet modern she's just it was such perfect casting and i'm not just saying that because you're in front of me i just thought it was genius when i, I saw agree her. i think she's a miracle i think she's yeah. one of the most talented people i've ever met and i think that that um harrison adores her i adore her i thought she adds such a breath of life to the movie and and i love you know her character was a little bit based on a character that barbara stanwick played in an old Preston Sturgis movie called The Lady Eve, who oh. she's a card shark and a bit of a con woman, but you know she's got a heart somewhere in there. Mm. Um, but it's this wonderful character, I think that Phoebe can embody so well. Someone who is incredibly appealing, and you just fall in love with her. But at the same time, she you know she just might destroy you. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. Tell me this, you know, Steven Spielberg. John Williams, Harrison Ford. I mean, you're an incredibly acclaimed director, but still, Steven Spielberg and Indiana Jones. Like, when you get the keys to this house, is there any, oh, can I do this? Don't hit a fire hydrant. <laughs> Just drive well, straight. Stay, yeah. it, it, but push the speed limit a little. 
The, yes, uh, yes. But um, the no, of course the the reality is it's an incredible honor. But what was more most appealing about the honor when they approached me with this opportunity, what was most appealing was was not that they were handing me the keys, but they were in the car with me. Um, mm -hmm. Stephen was a part of the creative process from the script through the locking of the final cut. Um, Harrison too. Um, John Williams, I got the experience of a lifetime working with one of the greatest film composers of all time, if not the greatest, writing a score the old-fashioned way in pencil on paper on a Steinway piano at his house and, you know, and then bringing those pages to an orchestra. Um, and and it, it was a miracle to watch, you know, these movies are to watch this kind of process happen because these movies are old school. They as much as they're about the characters, they're also about 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 how much we love movies and yeah. golden age movies. And and so my collaborators, the people in the car with me were one of the main reasons I w I ended up eager to to do it was because I was going to have a chance to work with my heroes. Yeah, yeah. In closing then, and this might be the weirdest curveball you've had all day, but maybe not. I proclaim to be Ireland's biggest Billy Joel fan. Most people will ask you about Logan or Copland, all movies I love. But you co-wrote Oliver and Company. Are you responsible for casting Billy Joel in his own I'm not responsible role? For casting or did you him. have any? No. I'm not responsible for casting him, but I did record him. I did come to New York and record him doing the voice work for playing Dodger in that movie. Um, and and we did it at, I, I think, the record plant, which is a kind of historic um, it was same place Springsteen recorded um, yeah. Darkness and Born to Run. And um, it was kind of an amazing experience. I was 22 years old at that point, I think. Wow. Well, the, the future was brighter than that. Listen, sorry I delayed things, but I had to ask you that. Lovely to talk to you. Same. Thank you. James Mangold there talking to me about Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Although you heard me there talking to him finally about Billy Joel voicing the dog Dodger in Oliver and Company. I always get a Billy Joel question in if it's relevant. And clearly it was. But the Dial of Destiny is ostensibly what he was talking to me about. Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, which is now in cinemas. And after the break, Chris Wasser will be reviewing it and the other week's new cinema releases. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time, News Talks TV and Movie Show. Now we turn to the week's new releases. Obviously, chief among them are Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, which we're going to get to because our arts journalist and film critic Chris Wasser has seen that. And he's also seen an unusually named movie called Ruby Gilman, Teenage Kraken, which is an animated movie, I think primarily aimed at kids. But let's find out. Hello, Chris. How are you? I'm very well, John. How are you? Very well. Now, listen, I've already done a fair bit of Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, having spoke to its director, uh, <laughs> James Mangold. But that said, I want to get your views on what you thought of it, because you have seen it and I gather you enjoyed it. But just for people who didn't hear the first part of the show, just quickly, this is the fifth installment, the final one, certainly with Harrison Ford. Give us a, a potted uh, synopsis of what's going on in this one. 
Yeah, sure. Very quickly, we we begin with, you know, a MacGuffin and some Nazis. So we're very much <laughs> traditional, you know, Indiana Jones territory. Um, of course, there's an artifact stolen by the Nazis. Of course, Indy's trying to get it back with the help of a bookish accomplice, this time portrayed by uh, Toby Jones. The MacGuffin this time is something called the Antikera. Uh, you know, created by Archimedes 2,000 years ago. Uh, some people believe that it will, it, it has the ability to locate fissures in time that will allow some people to travel in time. It doesn't really matter. What matters is that Indy holds on to this style after defeating some Nazis for a good 25 or 30 years. And when we catch up with him in the late 60s, it seems all of his adventures are over. That is until the daughter of his former accomplice shows up one day. She's actually his granddaughter. She's portrayed by Phoebe Waller-Bridge. And she starts asking questions about the Antikara, about this dial device. And yeah. it turns out she's asking questions questions because she wants to sell it to somebody but you know also at the same time we've got this rocket scientist who used to be a nazi is looking for the dial is looking to reverse time pretty much we end up on this wild goose chase all around the world john we end up in uh, morocco one stage end up in spain it's all to do with this device that if it gets into the wrong hands could see some evil nazis reversing time and changing the outcome of the second world war so obviously indiana jones is not going to have that and tries to save it (laughs) Very, very well put. Now, I just have to clarify. Did you say she's his granddaughter? Sorry, goddaughter. Yes, goddaughter. Yeah. No, it's usually you correcting me. So I just, I had to get that in. She's his goddaughter. This is, you know, either a really good idea or a terrible idea. These movies are beloved, apart from the last one, The Crystal Skull, which was atrocious. But, you know, for a lot of movie fans, the first three movies, and particularly the original Raiders of the Lost Ark, are just, you know, the reason why people go to the cinema so it was a risk it's fair to say i think so yeah um i think it's so odd that if you read about the production of this film you'll find that you know going back 25 years even steven spielberg had this you know five film plan at one stage that you know we were always going to get five indies but after that 2008 one after the kingdom of the crystal skull and the divisive response i mean some people love that film and then other people who, you know, have their, you know, who, other people who, you know, are genuine Indiana Jones fans and realize that it doesn't really fit in with the rest of the series. They'll know that it's not a great film and it's not a great Indiana Jones film. So I'm surprised that we are here. But we have James Mangold. We have in James Mangold, we have a director who, although we don't have Steven Spielberg and George Lucas involvement, he knows how these films are supposed to look. He knows how they're supposed to sound. And he's kind of going back to that idea that when this character was created before Raiders of the Lost Ark, George Lucas wanted to make something that was sort of a throwback to the serials that he grew yeah. up with, to the films that he used to go and see with his mates on, you know, a Saturday afternoon. It's supposed to be silly. It's it's intentionally old-fashioned, even before Lucas's time. You know, it's supposed to be bright and vibrant and fairly tongue-in-cheek and always quite self-aware, too. And I think with Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, did you find that sometimes it felt like Steven Spielberg was trying to make a film of that time or trying to keep up with other blockbusters around us? Well, it's a phrase that almost sounds like a cliche, but you know, when the aliens show up at the end, yeah. I'm just like, get, get, you know, get me out of here. What, what happened here? So, yeah, and to be honest, I can't even remember what was happening, and I just remember having a visceral sense of I can't believe I, you know, I'm so disappointed by a series that I loved, you know. But listen, let's get to the Dial of Destiny. Do you think the gambles paid off? I think so. Uh, I think th- the whole time I was saying that there were a few things that I, I wasn't into. So the first 20 minutes sees a digitally de-aged Ford, mm. uh, uh, you know, kind of we, we're, we're working with a, no- a younger indie during 1944, you know, the last days of, of the, the Second World War. So James Mangold and his team have pumped an awful lot of money. I mean, this is this ranks among the most expensive films ever made. I think the budget is somewhere around $290 million. Um, so we have this digital uh, wizardry going on again there. I don't think I'm ever going to be into that. We see, mm. we see, we've seen it 
in Star Wars. We see it sometimes in the Marvel films. You know, it it's it doesn't work. It's quite unsettling. It's it's that dead-eyed glassiness that yeah. just, it, it it takes away from from the picture. And I realize that it's quite necessary in terms of the narrative, but I I wasn't a fan of all that stuff. And you know, it is a little bit creaky in terms of you know, but like it does take a while for the whole thing to get up and running. But once it does. I it just it charmed the socks off me. I mm. loved the idea is like it's not quite the meditation on mortality that James Mangold had promised. I mean, at, at one stage he was saying that this is going to be a film that fully embraces and leans into the idea of this, you know, famous explorer at sunset. You know, he's in his winter years. Let's fully, you know, let's not just make old jokes. Let's just lean into the idea of what this, you know, uh, 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 amazing person can no longer do. It doesn't really do any of that. It, it it does at one stage just get back to the old jokes. But Harrison Ford's performance here is probably up there with the best he's been in, 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 in quite a long time because I think even recently, we saw this actually in Shrinking. We saw it with the Yellowstone that he did. We saw it in the Blade Runner sequel that he did. He's acting. And and for a while there, we, we didn't get <laughs> Harrison Ford acting. We just got Harrison Ford showing up for the paycheck. But he's delivering a performance here that's that's you know full of warmth and vitality and, and, and he's engaged with the material. He's quite good. The story is silly, but they all are. The, yeah. <laughs> the, the, the final act is just bananas, but they all are. There's <laughs> it, there's an awful lot here that, you know, looks and sounds like the indie films that we grew up yeah. with. So sometimes it does. Sometimes it's a bit of a cover version. Sometimes it feels like a bit of a tribute act, mm. but it worked for me. Yeah, no, and it absolutely did for me. Now, I, I sound like I'm in argumentative form, and I'm very fond of you, but I disagree slightly that they didn't lean into him aging because, as I said in my interview with James Mangold earlier in the show, no, but as I said to him, I, I thought they made a virtue of him being a bit older. So he did seem tired and not able for the stunts at times in a good way. So that's, I, I think I liked his world weariness. I, I don't think he was as swashbuckling, but that that's a small thing but the thing that i thought was the revelation for me and i'm a big um uh, phoebe waller bridge fan based on fleabag alone and i think she's great but i didn't think she was going to be this good she is like a female version of him as a younger self strangely old-fashioned but utterly modern i just thought she was bewitching as the goddaughter who kind of becomes his partner in possible crime yeah, the supporting players here are kind of, you know, they do put the work in. I thought Mad Mads Mikkelsen, you know, he's brilliant he's, as well. Yeah, he's another oily villain. Uh, I like the idea too that he's kind of like one of those old school Indiana Jones villains. At one stage, he he lights up a cigarette, and I started thinking to myself, oh wow, it's been a while since we've had you know an old school baddie smoking in a film. Um, <laughs> so so it is quite old fashioned. And we also have Antonio Banderas in there, who's maybe a little bit wasted in 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 a, in, a, in, a, in an otherwise fun cameo role. But yeah, Phoebe Waller Bridge, I've kind of been mulling this over all week. Is her performance great or is it a little bit awkward? I think it's somewhere in the middle. You know, she whoa, does. Oh, yeah, whoa, I know. Whoa, whoa. Okay, no, listen, that's why you're here. That's why you're paid the big bucks as well. I think th- this, uh, you, you remember that there's a car chase at one stage uh, through Morocco on board these two cars that don't look as though they, they're, they're, they're going to last, you know, 30 seconds yeah. down the road, let alone kind of racing after bad guys. Um, and all of the, 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 the banter back and forth between Phoebe Waller Bridge and Harrison Ford. It was all a bit too, maybe it's the writing that was a problem. It was all a bit too scripted. It was all a bit too pleased with itself. Some of that stuff really annoyed me. But yeah, when it gets down to it, when the two of them are left alone and when they actually kind of, you know, find, uh, you know, when, when there's a commonality there, because at the start, you know, her intentions aren't all that honest. The reason why she's asking for the dial and he maybe puts a little too much faith in her. When they kind of do find something, some common ground, 
that's when it starts to work. They do make for a nice double act, but mm. it was a little bit creaky at first, if I'm honest. Her performance. Okay, well, look, that's that that's fine. I mean, you're wrong, but that's fine. <laughs> no, but listen, the, the thing that I liked about her though, and, and she has this Indiana Jones quality that that I thought was similar to him in that she kind of is able to smile through the tragedy at times. Like when she's about to fall off a cliff, she's still able to make a quip, which I thought was good. You know. Uh, finally, then I said to you before we came on air like that I found it strangely comforting because I had low expectations for it. And I gathered from someone I spoke to at Cannes that it was going to be poor and and it wasn't. But I really think for people, like I think both of us who love those early movies, there's enough here for us to find a connection to Raiders and the other ones. I think so, yeah. There is mm. enough of that, you know, Spielbergian charm, despite the fact yeah. that Spielberg is an, is an executive producer. There is enough of that, you know, indie magic to keep it ticking over. And it does, for the Indiana Jones series, what, say, Rocky Balboa did for the Rocky series. I know they mm. found a way to, you know, mine <laughs> mine some more gold out of that <laughs> with, with various spin-offs. Uh, but it redeems itself, I think, yeah. because Crystal Skull, it's just, it's all over the place. Um, mm. Just as I said, in terms of a blockbuster, in terms of an Indiana Jones film, it just doesn't work. Uh, with this, there is a beginning, a middle, and end. There's a lovely performance from Harrison Ford. It knows how ridiculous it is. Uh, you know, it is quite moving at times. You know, it's quite mm. romantic. It's just yeah. brilliantly old-fashioned. And it looks very impressive, too, aside, of course, from that weird de-aging stuff. Um, and I think this really is it. And I hope this is it because, you know, we recall that quote that Harrison Ford gave a couple of years ago when he was asked about any potential reboots after he's finished with Indiana Jones. And he just smiled and said, I'm Indiana Jones. When I'm gone, he's gone. And I hope that that's the case. Bow out with this one. It goes out with its head held high. It goes out with, a little, with you know, after reclaiming its dignity. Finish on this. No more Indiana Jones. What a nice way to finish. Yeah. So what would you say stars wise for Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny? I think three stars is probably, and, and my, some people might hear that and think, whoa, after everything you've just said, but three, it's a solid Indiana Jones film. It's not the best of the series at all. It's better than Crystal Skull. It's better than the second one, but three stars is probably fair. Okay. Okay. You see, I was I was so pleased by it because I think I had low expectations. So I'm kind of torn between three and four, and I get everything you're saying, even though I don't agree about Phoebe Waller-Bridge. That said, I think I'm going to go for three and a half. I think it's a very pleasing summer blockbuster that will keep the Indiana Jones fans happy. So that is Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, which is in cinemas from this Wednesday. So it's, it, it's out there, and uh, they spent a lot of money making it. So I'm sure they're hoping they'll make a lot of that money back so Chris the other movie that you've seen this week and I suppose is the only other show in town although they're probably kicking themselves that they were released the same week as Indiana Jones is Ruby Gilman Teenage Kraken an animated movie for kids or adults or both uh, maybe a little bit of both well it's from DreamWorks okay. Animation so I'd say <laughs> they're hoping that'll be a little bit of both uh, but yeah that title is certainly mouthful and it does what it <laughs> says in the title so we are dealing with a teenage kraken a kraken being of course you know these legendary sea creatures that were said to have taken down many a pirate ship um, the idea here is that uh, you know ascend, uh, uh, descending from 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 these uh, you know large ginormous actually sea creatures we have an anthropomorphic family who just want to you know fit in with humans and they actually set up a home for themselves in this lovely little coastal town called Oceanside and they dress like humans they behave like humans you know the kids go to to, to high school together uh, the dad has this weird um, you know uh, uh, online channel where he 
kind of, you know, builds ships inside of little bottles. And the mom is, you know, the hottest real estate agent in town. You know, if you want a house <laughs> within a day, she'll get it for you. So they've settled in. Um, but obviously there's going to be a teenager that's going to ask an awful lot of questions about their heritage. Obviously she wonders why she can't get into the water because she'll, you know, otherwise she'll turn into this ginormous sea monster. And obviously at some point she is going to fall into the water because they live (laughs) beside the sea. And when she turns into this ginormous sea monster in front of the entire school and everyone catches it on their, on their uh, smartphones, all hell breaks loose. And that leads her on a path to basically finding her grandmother uh, voiced by Jane Fonda, getting back into the ocean and discovering the truth about her heritage. And is, it's an obvious question, but is the ocean then in a similar way to Turning Red, that pretty decent movie from two years ago on Disney, a metaphor for puberty and all that kind of stuff? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's probably unfortunate that it's coming on the heels of of, of Turning Red, which is a a far superior, by no means a perfect animation, although I I will probably be the thousand person who said this, that film should have received a cinematic release like this one. Um, Mm. uh, But but there are some very, very similar ideas in here. Um, Look, some nice ideas, lovely voice cast. You've got Lana Condor in there. You've got uh, Tony Collette playing the mom. As I said, you've got Jane uh, Fonda as the grandmama, uh, the grandmother Kraken creature. It's the, the biggest problem I had with this is it's not very funny and it's not very well animated. And, mm. and that's such a shame because we've talked about, you know, the last Puss in Boots film here before. That last Puss in Boots film released at the beginning of the year was just terrific. And the animation, that blending of CG and also this kind of, you know, uh, the storybook pop-up almost like the kind of stuff that we see in the in the in the across the spider-verse films yeah that worked really well for this series and it just breathed fresh life into it here we have something like you know saturday morning very flat uninspired cartoon fair and that just distracted mm. me i just thought well that, at least make it look nice and at least remember to have some jokes and because it's not very interesting to look at and because it's just constantly explaining itself and doesn't have any room for jokes you're constantly picking it, picking it apart, or at least I was. You shouldn't be sitting there, John, at a children's cartoon questioning the internal logic of something like this. The yeah. only, and so I spent most of my time, I call it the Cars problem, basically. You'll remember how Cars are not, they're, they're not very good films. They're probably the worst of the Disney Pixar stuff. And I think I spent most of my time with the Cars films trying to figure out what happened to this world? Where are all the humans? And who's how? How did the cars reproduce? How did the cars build themselves or, repro- or reproduce? What's happening here? That's what I was doing with this thing. I just couldn't see past the fact that the humans don't ever question why the Gilmans are blue. If they have any sort of question about why they do things differently, the Gilmans just say, "Oh, we're Canadian." I don't really understand what that joke means. <laughs> <laughs> I just found it very unfunny, a little bit charmless, and just a wasted opportunity because those like the ideas in it are great. But it just the follow through is just not. Yeah, I guess if you're starting to question the logic of a movie like this, it's not magical enough. It doesn't look well enough and it's not funny enough. Tell me this, you know, you mentioned the Spider-Verse movies and the animation. Those are amazing. Turning Red, the animation is great. Like animation, they're, they're changing things up. DreamWorks making something so flat is kind of strange, isn't it? Because they were the, you know, the lightning carrier for a while. Oh, they were the lightning carrier, yeah. And we even had what was it the is it the bad guys that we had last year? Yeah, uh, Sam Rockwell. I, I saw it. that with the kids. I love that actually. Yeah, I mean, it, again, I I probably had some problems with the story. Uh, I'm I'm, I'm quite grumpy with the kids' cartoons today, John. Uh, but, <laughs> you didn't but again, like that one, did you? But I thought the animation was superb. In it. Yeah, I thought it just it just you know popped from the screen. And there's it there is an interesting quality now to DreamWorks stuff where it's like okay, we can't just give them 
you know, the same sort of level of animation that we gave audiences in Shrek 20, 25 years ago. That just doesn't yeah. cut it anymore. We need to do something fresh. Maybe an awful lot of animators went to Spider-Verse and thought, okay, those guys have set the bar extraordinarily high and people have responded so well to it. So let's do something along those lines. I mean, maybe it's too high a bar for, 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 for other animation studios, but let's just do something like that. Let's take risks. And also mm. just bring in you know some 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 funnier writers i feel that you know there there is a good team of writers here we have some writers who uh pam brady for instance who who, who worked on south park and is quite talented i just was mm. wondering the whole time where are the punchlines where are the where where are all the jokes gone it's just it's a film that kind of bogs itself down in its own mythology and spends an awful lot of time giving us this background about you know this war between krakens and mermaids and this you know uh mystical uh a trident that if somebody finds it they'll have the power of whatever now it's just it's all a bit too much it's all a bit too superhero-y so okay. yeah as i said there's some there's some great stuff in there but when it's put all together it just it doesn't really have the desired effect so what are you going to say for Ruby Gilman, Teenage Kraken Stars Wise, which is on general release from this Friday, I should say, the 30th of June? It probably sounds a little bit unfair, but what I'm going to say about Ruby Gilman, Teenage Kraken is go see the new Spider-Man again instead. <laughs> um, unfortunately, the new Spider-Man, you mean uh, Into the Spider-Verse? Uh, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, Spider yeah. Spider-Man Across uh, the Spider-Verse, yeah. yes. So it's, uh, so it's two stars for Ruby, unfortunately. Okay, okay. It sounds kind of fair. That is two stars for Ruby Gilman, Teenage Kraken, but three stars for Indiana Jones and Dial of Destiny and three and a half from me for Indiana Jones. I've been talking to arts journalist and film critic Chris Wasser. Chris, thanks a million. Thanks, John. The ocean is a mysterious world. Humans know more about the surface of Mars than the floor of the ocean. And the sea creatures who live there, well, even the ones you have imagined, you've imagined them wrong. Take the mighty giant kraken, bloodthirsty monster, sinker of ships. Where are you even getting this? Krakens are majestic creatures and noble protectors. I'm just Ruby Gilman. Normal teenager. For generations, Krakens have protected the seas, keeping us safe from the most power-hungry and dangerous creature of all. The mermaid? Yes! The mermaid! But people love mermaids. I love you so much! Love you too, Rando! Of course they do! People are stupid! A clip there from Ruby Gilman. Teenage Kraken, the unusually named Ruby Gilman and Teenage Kraken and Chris Wasser was not enjoying that, but he was enjoying Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, as was I. After the break, Derek Mooney on his favourite movie. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. It's that stage of the week where we talk to someone well-known about their favourite movie. I'm delighted to be joined now by one of Ireland's best-known broadcaster on TV and radio with a particular interest in nature, it has to be said, and shows like Mooney Goes Wild have become cult listening. And indeed, his recent TV show, Back from the Brink, was widely praised for being a very good, optimistic piece of TV. <laughs> I am delighted to say he joins me now to talk about his favourite movie and you never know what you're going to get. And there's a terrible pun in there. Hello, Derek. How are you? John Fardy, thank you very much indeed. This is the second date we've had, but you let me down on the first one. You stood me up. Now, I know there hasn't been a clock over Cleary's for a few years, but I was there. I'm supposed to be on your show last year and it didn't happen. But here we are. And I'm delighted. 
I'm going to blame the minions on that. All right. I do. So listen. My favorite Mooney, Mooney, my favorite (laughs) movie. (laughs) My favorite movie is Forrest Gump. I have seen it, I think, nine or ten times. And it's interesting because I remember the first time I went to see it, I didn't know what it was about. And usually I've seen a trailer or something like that and I'll go, oh, I must see that. You know, when you're in the movie and they say coming up when you're waiting for the actual main feature to start and they give you an indication of what's coming to the screen. But I hadn't seen it in the case of Forrest Gump, but I am a kind of mini fan of Tom Hanks. If Tom Hanks is in a movie, I'll go and see it. Same with Michael Caine. And I kind of like Tom Cruise. So they're kind of people that I know that if you go and see them in a movie, it's going to be good. And I wasn't disappointed. And as I said, I've seen it. I've lost count. It it could be more than 10 times, to be perfectly honest with you. Anytime it pops up on TV, I will stay in and watch it. And I can't say that about anything else other than The Godfather. Wow. Now, listen, what I love about this slot is, and obviously that was the joke, you never know what you're going to get, but there often is a kind of, it's it's an obvious choice. So, for instance, Eamon Dumphy, when he did this slot, mm. did One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And, you know, he's kind of an anti-establishment figure. I can see the attraction. Pat Kenny did uh, Some Like It Hot, which, you know, Pat's a suave kind of man, classic, yeah. <laughs> it makes sense. But when I think about Forrest Gump, the thing is, it's about this very benign optimistic character who takes life on the chin despite some of the hardships that befall him. Is is that why you love it? I think so, probably. I like the kind of innocence of it. I have a niece and a nephew who have both got Asperger's syndrome. And I hope to think that the world would be kind to them in the same way that I'm kind to them. I worked on the Special Olympics when it came to Ireland and how well the Special Olympics team did in Berlin recently. Yes. I worked on that as executive producer for RT Radio. We set up a radio station, The Voice of the Games. When it came here first, the first time the games were ever held outside of Ireland. And I was greatly inspired by that. But I kind of think there's something nice about people managing to sail through life without causing any grief for anybody else. And just when you think everything is going to be horrible and terrible for them, that actually kind of look shines upon them and they manage to make it through. I do like that idea of kind of innocence and genuineness and goodness prevailing, to be honest. So, yeah, I think I do. I could see why Eamon Duffy would like, what flew over the cuckoo's nest? He could have been in it. And Pat, yeah, I could have seen Pat in some like it hot as well. Yeah. So maybe, yeah, I'm a little bit innocent and I'm a little bit simple. And oh, maybe no, that's why I like that. the movie. No, no, no. I meant I No, meant I don't mean optimistic. it. No, I just mean I like, I like simple things. I mean, yeah. I, I, I like... Um, the movie really touched me. I can't watch that movie without crying. And you were talking yeah. about quotes before we came on. And that's one of the things that, to use boxing parlance, that Forrest Gump gives you pound for pound. It's the heavyweight of quotes in movies. I mean, you, if you think of um, Star Wars, may the force be with you, right? Or yes. if you think of The Wizard of Oz, there's no place like home or E.T. phone home from E.T. One quote from each of those movies. I could have played the quote game with you. What are the quotes from those movies? But if you go to Forrest Gump and I actually dug up a list of them, you could get run, Forrest, go run. Um, My mama always said you've got to put the past behind you so you can move on. Mama always said dying was a part of life. I sure wish it wasn't. And it just goes on and on and on and on. And there's something really inspirational about the quotes in that movie, the words in that movie, the direction of that movie. And it was a huge box office success as well as you know yeah. it was the biggest box office success of the year and, I, and it won Oscars and it got loads of nominations 
Tom Hanks got Best Oscar. The movie got Best Picture. I mean, where would you be without Forrest Gump? Uh, the world would be a much poorer place. And tell me this, just finally on it, Dan, you, you say you really like Tom Hanks. There was some, not criticism, but some people find the performance a bit too hokey or something. Now, I don't, but clearly no, you're I with didn't. him hook, line and sinker. Yeah, no, I didn't. And I saw him, do you remember he was on Graham Norton talking about where he got the accent from? Yeah. And uh, he said it was the little kid who played young Forrest in the movie. That's where he got the accent because that little kid spoke like that. Mm. I don't know. I, I, I was I, the reason I like Tom Hanks and uh, Michael Caine and people like that. Denzel Washington as well is they're very believable in movies. Mm. I yeah. never have to second guess them. I believe their character when they're on the screen. Yeah. And there's loads of actors who just about get away with it. But those guys really make me believe in what they're doing and and the place they take me to. I think that's what it is. So no, I didn't find it hokey. I thought yeah. it was wonderful actually. Excellent. Have, get the, you get that clip, John, it, it, uh, for your own benefit. Watch him on Graham Norton and listen to him tell that story about how he came up with the accent. It's hilarious. Derek Mooney's giving me homework, people. But, you know, you, I, 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 have to, I have to take it on the chin. Listen, you know, you've had a long career. Did you ever brush up against Tom Hanks anywhere? No, never. Never. No, no, okay. no. no. I've, I've never really worked with famous people, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So yeah. even when I was making the radio program, we never had journalists on. We never had stars on. I mean, the whole idea of the Mooney program when it was on in the afternoon was to talk to the people of Ireland, not to talk yeah. to stars and newspapers. Other radio programs were doing that and other radio programs would do it much better than me. So no, my whole thing, and even with Winning Streak, when I was doing Winning Streak, it was just the plain people of Ireland, if you like, like myself, who were just bottle scratched cards, stuck it in an envelope and ended up on the TV. So it was a bit of that. So no, I never really rushed up against, yeah. rushed up against anybody famous. I suppose the most famous person I would have ever met would have to be Bishop Desmond Tutu when he came on a visit to Ireland and we were, he was in a school in Ballyfermot, uh, was Ballyfermot, Ballymon, sorry, Ballymon and we were invited up for the radio programme because I think he was opening a garden I can't remember the exact details and I interviewed him but that was it, I've, I've never really interviewed anybody famous what? other than Eurovision stars Yes, of course, of <laughs> course Listen, this might be a question you're tired of being asked but your your love of nature because uh, people yeah. know you as this you know, Mooney Goes Wild the an aturist, yeah. the title, the naturist <laughs> and all that and, and the webcams with the blue tits that again was, I was going to call that a cult viewing but that was in hundreds of thousands of people who were tuning in to watch these blue tits in your garden by all accounts but tell me this was there a moment in your kind of broadcasting career where you thought hang on I love nature I should be talking about this in the radio and TV that's what started my career I never yeah. wanted to do anything else only work in RT I went to school at the back gate I lived down the road in Donnybrook I used to see people from RT all the time including Gay Byrne and I dreamt about being in this place I remember Jimmy McGee the late Jimmy McGee talking about standing in front of his mirror when he was a kid with a hairbrush in his hand commentating to the mirror because all he wanted to do was commentate on sports. Well, I was a bit like that, not quite with the hairbrush, but I just wanted to work in radio and telly. I didn't necessarily want to be famous or anything like that. Mm. And Don Conroy was born a few doors from me and I knew him, Don from the den. Yeah. And I used to kind of help answering some of his mail. And then needs must. And it was because of my connection with Don that I came up with the idea of putting forward an idea for a short nature series to RT Radio 1. I was very interested in nature, but that's where it came from. Kind of because Joe O'Donnell, who had an acting head of children's, told me that if you want to make a career, do something. Even if somebody else is doing it, but do something, but do it in your style. Yeah. Don't be anybody else. And we came up with this little idea. I was interested in nature and I stuck with it. And, and that was it. And even when... Um, I was on TV and moved to the radio, the Mooney show in the afternoon. I never give up the nature program. Never. Yeah. 
Yeah. Because I always kind of thought that was the bread and butter. It was something I liked doing. And you always meet nice people. Yeah. And that's the truth of it. I mean, you never meet prima donnas because most people who are working in the field of natural history, it's the same, I think, for pets, you know, vets and veterinary nurses and people who like animals are usually very sincere, very genuine individuals. Mm. And you kind of rub off them and they're quite nice to be around. So that's why I never gave it up. And I love the subject matter. I really do. But I'm not an expert. And I'm at pains all the time to tell people, I'm not the scientist. Aina Nilauna, Richard Collins, Terry Flanagan, Matthew Chebb, Niall Hatch, all of these people who are our regular contributors and consultants are the scientists. I'm an ideas guy. I come up with the thoughts for what's going to be in the program, like you have to for your show. I have an interest in it, but I talk to experts Mm. about those subjects then. And that's why it works. It's like the kind of the comedy duo, John, the funny guy, the straight guy and the funny guy. Mm-hmm. Like you need both. Well, that that's very humble of you. But did I not see recently that you were awarded an honorary doctorate from UCC for your contribution to natural history and nature? Yeah. And I wanted them to give it to the radio program <laughs> because when they contacted me, I said, could we not give it to the team or the radio program? They said, it's for you. Yeah. I said, I know, but I'm only the ideas guy. And they said, yes, that's the point. Yeah. You have to think about this. I put it together. I produce it. You know, I do the editing on it. I make sure it gets done, whatever it happens to be. We've made a whole heap of documentaries. If anybody goes to our website, we've made an awful lot. I've lost count of the amount of natural history documentaries we've made over the years. I've been at this game for over 30 years now. Uh, I'm not being humble. I'm just being matter of fact about it. You know what I mean? And um, I would like to have given it to the radio program, but I was deeply honoured by UCC and Professor John O'Halloran down there uh, to, to even think of giving it to me. We've done an awful lot of work in Cork not necessarily with UCD, but the Don Chorus was born in Cork. Yeah. You know, and other, we do an awful lot of programs because I've always believed that nature isn't based in Dublin 4, you know what I mean? No, no more than when we did the Mooney <laughs> show that the people that we had on were from Dublin 4. They weren't. Yes. I just happened to be from Dublin 4, but that was it. So I, I, was, I was thrilled. I was mortified at the same time when yeah. I had to get up at the beach. I broke down in tears, but it was a lovely gesture on their part. And, you know, I've been saying a lot over the years that honours, there should be an honour system in Ireland, but to be given to people who really make a difference. Not celebs, not stars, not radio presenters like me, but people who work in daycare centres or whatever. My mother went to a daycare centre in Donnybrook and the nun who ran that was fantastic. And all you hear is bad news about the clergy and all that. And there's plenty bad to be said, but there are very decent, hardworking people who give up their lives to help other people. And this woman did, Sister Marie. And I often thought that people like that should be given uh, honours. There should be an honour system in Ireland, I think, a proper one. Well, well said. And listen, finally, we always ask people in this slot, particularly the, the non-movie people, have you ever acted? Have I ever acted? I was in Mrs. Brown's Boys. That's right, you were. Yes, I was God, in, I'll have to uh, fire my researcher. Episode one, series three. Yeah. And I played a character called Simon Levine, who was a, a hypnotist. Right. And I was playing at That's the... Right christening for the triplets and um i was in the pub and i remember saying to brendan well uh, how good a hypnotist am i and he <laughs> said look around you you're a crap <laughs> you're in a pub and i was terrible i mean i was dreadful but that's what they wanted and, and so you, know, you didn't tread the sorry you didn't tread the boards in school or no never like that. no okay well when i was in school i played the ghost of christmas past <laughs> okay right in a Christmas Carol, and I think I fell off the stage, if I'm not mistaken. But <laughs> I, no, and the funny thing is, you know, there's a career for everybody. I wouldn't like to be an actor. 
You know what I mean? I, I, like some people say they want to be famous and they'd want to be famous than anything. Well, I wouldn't like to be an actor. I couldn't do it. I'm, I'm always amazed. I can present radio and TV programs just about, but I can't do voiceovers. I'm terrible. And I always wish they'd get a voiceover artist in to do the VO bits of anything I make, because that's a skill in itself. So, no, my job is pretty much kind of getting stuff together, coming up with ideas and occasionally presenting those ideas yeah. to the listening or viewing audience. But well, look, no, I've never been on the set. Other than Mrs. Brown's by Simon Levine. I was raging I wasn't in the movie because I bet the royalties were fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Listen, his favourite movie is Forrest Gump. He's my favourite Mooney. Derek Mooney, thanks a million for chatting to me. <laughs> Bye! Death is just a part of life. Something we're all destined to do. I didn't know it, but I was destined to be your mama. I did the best I could. You did good, Mom. Well, I happen to believe you make your own destiny. You have to do the best with what God gave you. What's my destiny, Mom? You're going to have to figure that out for yourself. Life is a box of chocolates, Forrest. You never know what you're going to get. Mama always had a way of explaining things so I could understand them. I will miss you, Forrest. Yes, a clip there from Forrest Gump. One of the many tear-inducing scenes from Forrest Gump. And that was the favourite film of the irrepressible Derek Mooney, who kindly chatted to me about his favourite film. And I should say Derek Mooney will be on our TV screens in late July and early August, opposite Nuala Carey as part of RTE's summer show. So you can look out for that later in the summer. And my thanks to Derek. That is it for this week. Next week on the show, I'm going to be talking to the director of the new Wham! documentary, which is launching on Netflix next week. And it's fascinating documentary so looking forward to that that's it for this week in the meantime i'll just remind you this show is available as a podcast every friday at 5 p.m on newstalk.com and the newstalk app powered by go loud and it's on the radio every saturday at 6 p.m here on newstalk get in touch with me at any stage during the week john underscore farty is my twitter handle or you can email me screen time at newstalk.com thank you for listening and i will talk to you all next week